I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we explore important new books and ideas in business. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by John List, who is a distinguished professor of economics at the University of Chicago, of course, the place for economics. And until recently, he served as the chairman of the Department of Economics. He's written other books before, Hidden Motives and the Undiscovered Economics of Everyday Life, for example. In addition to being an author and a professor, he consults regularly with many Fortune 500 companies. And he's just published his next book, The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale, which was published in February by Penguin Random House. The book is about the necessity of scaling ideas and the things that help and get in the way of doing this. I'm very excited to delve into the ideas behind the book. Welcome, John. Thanks so much for having me, Martin. So, John, it's a curious title for a book, Mixing Physics, Economics and Business. What is the voltage effect? (laughs) Exactly. Well, I hope it piques a little bit of interest, Martin. So the voltage effect, I want you to think about it as you test an idea in the small and what happens to it when you scale it up to the large. That's the voltage effect. So basically, voltage means scaling effectively. Would that be a good way of understanding it? I think that's right, but voltage can go both ways. There's good kinds of voltage and there's bad kinds of voltage. And the book is about trying to determine within your idea whether you have one that's going to have high voltage or whether it's going to have a voltage drop. So your book is focused on scaling. And of course, there are other parts of the idea development process. There's discovering ideas, there's developing ideas, there's optimizing, operationalized ideas. Why did you focus on scaling? Do you see this as being a very important stage? No, I think that's right. So the way I think about it is there are a lot of different, let's say, pursuits that we have in life, but it really all begins with the idea. And what are the features of the idea? And I think that those features or those signatures give us a really good indication of whether you can change the world or whether maybe you can only change 5% of the world. And that's what I think is key before we drop a lot of resources or a lot of time into an idea. Your book reads like a business strategy book. I'm a business strategist. A lot of our listeners will be coming from business strategy, but you're an economics professor. How come you're writing this business strategy book, in my view? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So I worked in the White House for a few years, about 20 years ago. I'm the current chief economist at Lyft. And I've also done field experiments, or I've used the world as my lab for the last 25 years. And in each of those walks of life, what I've noticed is one thing. You can have an idea, you can test it, but whether it works in the large is a total guess or was total art before I I put my toes, let's say, in this pond. And before I did so, a lot of times people viewed this as the pearls before the swine. And what I mean by that is the pearls are the innovation and the swine is the implementation or the scaling. I don't think that's right. I think it should be pearls before the jadeite because it's the jadeite that's the most precious commodity here and that's scaling. And why did you write it now? Is is now as good a time as any in the sense that you're talking about a very perennial challenge in business or is there something important about the current time for us to focus and deepen our understanding of scaling? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think scaling is evergreen, but I think there there isn't a better time when you think about poverty eradication. We have great ideas on the business side, and a lot of times 
they don't scale. We think as venture capitalists, you know, what is the science behind an idea that might scale? I think that this particular topic is evergreen and there's no time but the present, of course, to put a little bit of science into the world of art. So your book obviously makes the assumption that the importance or the mechanics of scaling are somehow underappreciated and under, under leveraged. What's the central idea of your book in terms of bringing more emphasis and science to scaling? Yeah. So when I first started to look into different ideas or government policies and looked into signatures of ideas that worked and signatures that didn't, and also going back and exploring what were in people's minds when they were making decisions about what to invest in, it was art. It, it was simply art. And my idea was we can add economics to this art and we can help to figure out which ideas are truly worth investing in. Of course, Silicon Valley talks a lot about rapid scaling and blitz scaling and so on. Do you think Silicon Valley has this worked out or are there some lessons here too? For <laughs> yeah, look, I, I've lived in the world and I currently live in the world of move fast and break things, throw spaghetti against the wall and whatever sticks you cook it fake it till you make it. Of course, she's going to be going to prison now, it looks like. I don't think Silicon Valley has it figured out, but we do have it figured out how to waste a lot of money and, and use our gut feelings when it comes to scaling. So your book is divided into two parts. Firstly, you, you deal with ways to avoid what you call voltage drops, you know, failures of scaling. And then you go on to look at voltage gains, ways of promoting scaling. So let, let's start off with the drops. You, you list five ways of avoiding voltage drops, avoiding false positives, not overestimating how broadly you can scale, focusing on unscalable ingredients, preventing spillovers, and ensuring that scaling is not too costly. Let's, let's go through those one by one, maybe giving the key idea and an example. So avoiding false positives, tell us what that's all about. Sure, sure. So false positives, these are cases where there was never any voltage in the first place, though it appeared otherwise. And history is replete with these types of ideas where we think we have gold, but it ends up being fool's gold. And I talk a little bit about Nancy Reagan and her follies in the 80s with the just say no policy. And I talk about several business propositions as well in that chapter. The bottom line here is these false positives can be nefarious false positives, which is what I call dupers. Think of Elizabeth Holmes. Or they could just be mistakes. The data are lying to you. And those come as well. And I talk about how we can avoid both of these types of false positives in the first chapter. In the second chapter, I talk about whether you're overestimating how big a slice of the pie your idea can capture. So often this is a result of failing to know your audience or assuming that the small subset of people who have bought into your idea are more representative of the general population than they actually are. So that when you scale it, your idea actually falls short for a broader set of people. Right. That sounds like a tough thing to, to do, John, in the sense that markets often don't pre-exist, especially for novel products that they're built. So you have your early pioneers and, and then you have your you know, early adopters and your late adopters and so on. How, how do you do that in practice before people may know that they want the new widget? No, absolutely. So the typical approach is the focus group. And I talk in this chapter about the Arch Deluxe, for example. The Arch Deluxe was a tremendous failure in the 90s. They brought in 
a focus group, and this is McDonald's, and they were asking whether the focus group liked their new hamburger called the Arch Deluxe. And of course, anyone who enters a focus group for McDonald's will either love McDonald's or be a hamburger lover. And they all said, we want this and we will purchase it if you provide it. This is a typical thing to do for people to say, right? Is that there's no skin off my back if I say, I want that product. So then when you introduce it, I can either buy it or not. But I'm better off because I have an option value of buying it. So what I propose in this chapter is that we need to do more multi-trial and multi-site and multi-population early explorations to make sure we get a good read for how broad our product actually will have appeal. I see. And then your next one's interesting. Number three on on your list of uh, voltage drops is unscalable ingredients. Do you mean by that people, ideas that are dependent on their originators and pioneers? Yeah, Martin, that's exactly right. So the third is really failing to evaluate whether your initial success depends on unscalable ingredients. And, And you're right. I make a strong point in the book that humans don't scale. So if you have an idea, think about the chef and the ingredients type of story. That's what I start off this chapter with. If your success is built off of a unique individual and you need that individual to scale broadly, good luck because it's it's impossible to find this close substitute and it's nearly as impossible to train somebody else to be a close substitute. So this is just a recipe for disaster. What you need to do, of course, is you need to go back to the lab and try to figure out, can this idea work in a different way without that unique individual? I guess the challenge there is that many things initially are pushed by a charismatic entrepreneur. So there must be an extent to which all ideas are dependent initially on a champion. So how do you measure the, the potential, could you call it institutionalizability of the, of the idea to invent a word? No, absolutely. So so there are two things here. One, you're exactly right. The initial idea or the kernel, the spark, is typically a person. But the execution, implementation, and rollout does not need to depend upon that person. Think about Google. Google's a great idea. The initial founders aren't the ones now who are making sure that they're doing the ad space correctly, the ad pricing correctly, rolling out and making sure that the ads are bringing in the revenues. That's a different set of characters altogether. Think about Lyft, same thing. The secret sauce is not going to be about Travis Kalanick, who founded Uber, or Logan Green and John Zimmer, who founded Lyft. It's going to be the drivers and making sure the marketplace is running efficiently. So it's okay to have an initial inspiration, but think of a restaurant, Martin. If the restaurant depends on the magical chef, and you have 40 restaurants, and that chef can only be in one of them, only one of them is going to work. The other 39 are not. Could you permit that in some ways, charisma might be scalable, providing it's not tied to a limited scale of execution? That's right. Often you can you know, industrialize a story, let's say a narrative associated with a person, and that can enhance a product and doesn't necessarily represent a scale bottleneck. I think that's right. The point here is anytime you need multiple humans to carry something out, if your initial success was based on one unique human, it's not working. Now, if that one unique human can be used at scale, it's image, a likeness, what have you, absolutely. But that's not needing multiple humans then, you only need the one. 
Okay, the next one's interesting. The fourth of the five causes of voltage drops are preventing spillovers, unintended effects. There seem to be a number of things in that category. How do you look ahead and spot the risk of unintended effects? No, you're exactly right. So, so this one, I unpack four types of spillovers. The simplest one is just, do people respond differently when they have a new product? So for example, the story I tell in the chapter is when we made seatbelts mandatory in the United States, it was in the 1960s. And what happened was the engineers estimated a huge, let's say, drop in fatalities because of this regulation. But when we rolled it out, there was a much smaller drop in fatalities. And the reason why is because drivers drove more aggressively when they wore seatbelts. Right. And we now all know that example, I think. That's right. How could you have reasonably spotted it at the time, not knowing how people would respond to this new innovation? Yeah, I, I think you need to look at like circumstances. So for example, when I worked in the EPA with bike helmets, I predicted that this is going to save many fewer lives. Are we sure we always want to do bike helmets? And what you find is bikers drive more aggressively and so do cars that drive around bikers. So there are, there are places where the results will spill over. So anytime you're dealing with risk, for example, and there's a risk-preserving technology, humans will undo part of that risk. That's now a general phenomenon in your idea. So kind of the other end of the extreme with unintended consequences or spillovers is when the marketplace might undo what you're trying to accomplish. And the example that I use in the chapter here is what happened to us at Uber when we rolled out tipping in the app. So what we found is when we only did it with 5% of the drivers, the drivers made more money and they worked more hours. So it was a win-win. But when we rolled it out to all the drivers in the marketplace, what happened was the drivers worked more and they undid all of the good stuff from the tip on the wage increase. So the wages in the end ended up being the same. Now, in this case, what we did is we did some intermediate steps. We did 5%, 10%, 15 etc. And we saw that the initial effect dissipated with the size of people we put in the tipping platform. So that gave us an indication of where the result was going. And that gives you an example of how as a firm you can add a little bit more to your market and you can test if there are spillover effects. So John, that sounds to me like not just testing the product and its economics, but testing the behavioral response of the consumers to the product. Would that be a good way of understanding this one? That's exactly right. That's perfect, Martin. Okay, so the last one is ensuring that scaling is not too costly. How do you do that? I guess for most of the products that we look at, we would expect the, the marginal cost to decline as the scale increases. Are you saying that's not always the case? And how do, you, how do you spot that? Yeah, that's a good point. So, so far, the first four vital signs are all on the demand side of the equation. And, and this fifth one is on the supply side. And in the business world, most of the time, this is where entrepreneurs start, is they say, does this idea have economies of scale? And in the public policy world, it's almost the exact opposite. They always look at the demand side. So it is true that most business ideas that are truly making it, they are making it because of supply side economies of scale. But there are cases where, for example, you have to draw from the same input market 
think about hiring a good teacher or hiring a good pool of workers, eventually you're going to have to go up the supply curve and pay more and more or higher and higher wage. And that causes diseconomies of scale. So this chapter talks about looking at your idea from the supply side and trying to determine, are you going to have enough runway before you enter the world of diseconomies of scale? Okay, so uh, listeners are probably quite discouraged by the many things that can go wrong at this point. So let, let's switch to the positive. Voltage gains or voltage amplifiers. You list four. They are using behavioral economic incentives, scaling from the margins. I definitely want to understand a little more about that one. Knowing when to quit and designing a winning and sustainable culture. Could you, in the same way, walk us through each of those and maybe with, with an example? So using behavioral economic incentives, why can that be powerful? I think when you talk about incentives, people typically think, well, here's an economist, he's going to tell us use more money or, or throw money at the problem. This chapter is more about using behavioral economics in the sense of, I look at what happened on the Uber tipping platform, and you can learn a lot about incentives that are non-pecuniary. I also talk about the clawback incentive scheme which essentially reverses the typical way in which we think about bonuses. So the typical way that your listeners will use bonuses is that you work all year, and at the end of the year, you get your Christmas bonus or your end of the year bonus. In this chapter, I advocate flipping around the timing of that bonus. I talk about using the bonus as a front-end perk, and then over time, if the person achieves, they get to keep that bonus, but if they don't achieve, you take away that bonus. And what that's doing essentially is it's leveraging loss aversion or the fact that people are much more attuned to losses than comparable gains. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Your book does draw heavily on behavioral economics, which I think is acknowledged as being a growing importance in business. This next one is quite interesting for me. Scaling from the margins. Tell, tell us about that. How do, you, how do you know what's happening to your marginal economics as you scale? Because I guess as you climb the scale curve, you, you see different increments of marginal utility and, and cost. And how do you understand and, and play that to your advantage? That's right. So in every walk of life, I've noticed that people think in terms of averages. So when I was in the White House, we made decisions on an average of something. I'm now at Lyft, and we oftentimes talk about averages. So here's what I mean by that. We say for the last 1,000 drivers, we've had to pay $500 per driver in Facebook ads. And then we say, on the other hand, for the last 1,000 drivers, we've had to pay $750 per driver in Google ads. Those are two averages. But then when I ask, what about the last 10 or 20 drivers from Facebook or Google? They say, well, we're not sure about that. We just have evidence for the last thousand. And I say, go and get me the last, how much it cost for the last 20 or 25 drivers. And they bring back the data. And lo and behold, what you find is it was a lot cheaper to get those drivers from Google than Facebook. Now, what that means is the margin is what's going to happen with your next dollar. Right. So this sounds like just a different way of looking at things. Basically, don't, don't allow yourself to be deceived by averages. Measure this last increment of utility or cost. Exactly. Is, is, is that right? Okay. Exactly. It, it's saying take thinner slices of the data 
And when you take thinner slices, you end up getting something that's a lot closer to a margin than an average. That's right. So knowing when to quit, I think, is clear enough. Obviously, we should quit bad ideas soon and stick with good ones. I guess my uh, question on this one is, if you quit, you never know what might have happened because you're, you're dealing with a counterfactual. How do you actually know enough to quit a bad idea? Is that knowable in practice? Yeah, I think it's partly knowable, but it's never, of course, completely knowable. Otherwise, we'd never make the mistake. This is all in a world of uncertainty. I think we don't quit enough because we don't recognize our opportunity cost of time. And in fact, what we do is we neglect our opportunity cost of time. If I'm going down the rabbit hole of one product, a lot of times we don't think about it as I can't do another product. And what we should always do is we should periodically look at our opportunity set and figure out what are you foregoing by doing this particular idea. And if you're foregoing something great or it's become something great that you're foregoing, that's sort of an element of, you know, I don't want to quit before I know where I'm going. But if I can go somewhere that is wonderful, I surely want to quit. And we tend only to quit when our current lot in life is soiled. We should just as likely want to quit when where we can go to next is wonderful. Right. Let me have a little detour into foresight there on, on this one of quitting, because I guess in general, I wonder if it's fair to say that your book assumes a measure of foresight about, you know, what's a bad idea, how customers are going to behave, how costs are going to scale. And I wonder whether we always have that, that foresight or enough foresight to do better than we, than we generally do. Tell me about the, the sort of foresight-related limits to, to what you're talking about in the book. Sure. So, so I don't think about it as having a high degree of foresight. I think more about it as giving the manager a playbook and a playbook about what kinds of information and what kinds of data that they want to gather to make an informed decision on where they're going. Because remember, if you don't quit something, you've still made a decision. You've made a decision to continue down the path where you're going. That doesn't involve any more or less foresight than anything else. Whether you stay the path or change, you are still making a decision. I think about my book as a playbook or a strategy guide to give the manager who was doing this basically by art before, or the decision maker, the CEO, an actual guide that's based on science. So the last of your uh, voltage amplifiers is building a winning and sustainable culture. Tell us about that. What are the elements of a culture that can scale more scientifically and effectively? Sure, absolutely. So here I talk a little bit about my days at Uber. And the days at Uber got a little bit rough at times, and this is well documented. And I really turned back the clock to the very beginning of an organization and how an organization can make sure that they create a diverse and inclusive environment. And it starts with recruiting a diverse workforce in a productive workforce. And I talk about the various ways you can do that. And then I also talk about the various ways in which you can ensure that pay is more equal. And you can ensure that everyone has a chance to negotiate and bargain and receive the promotions that they deserve. And that's a kind of culture that you can set up from the very beginning of your organization. 
Diversity, obviously, is important in ethical terms, but how does ensuring diversity and fairness uh, promote this idea of effective scaling? What's the link there? Yeah, absolutely. So there is mounting evidence now that a diverse group of people are more innovative, they can cover more territory, and they end up being more productive as a composition than workers that are more similar. So as you scale and need greater and greater ideas and you need more innovation to seek out both product improvements, maybe new product, maybe scale improvements, these are areas where a more diverse workforce, there's mounting evidence that this gives you a much better chance, much better odds to scale. Oh, that's interesting. So you're saying that the scaling process requires innovation in its own right over and above the original product and, and that diversity of thought and practice can help that sort of meta innovation, that second order innovation. That's correct. That's exactly right, Martin. Let me ask you a, a huge question, maybe an unfair question, which is, seems to me that the mother of all scaling problems is climate change. We have our individual corporate net zero goals and, and climate efforts. Yet, if I look at the, uh, the CO2 emissions trajectory and the average global temperature trajectory, really not enough. So from that perspective, it's a scaling problem. Do you have any opinions or observations on scaling and accelerating efforts on climate change or what might be the, the rate limiting factor in, in the case of this particularly difficult problem? That's a great question. So there it's, I think it's one part technology. I don't think we have the technology figured out quite yet. And I think it's one part getting the developing countries on board and bringing their standard of living and per capita incomes high enough to where they might want to start caring about climate like the richer countries do. It's a scaling problem, both because the Western world hasn't figured out how to continue to economically grow in a sustainable way, and the poorer countries haven't figured out a way to generate enthusiasm about wanting to take on the problem. And we have to also make sure that we're transferring green technologies to the developing countries so when they do continue and grow, grow and grow, that they're growing in a much more sustainable way than they are right now. That's a really interesting lens on the problem, I think, as a scaling problem. So I've got a couple of personal questions for you in a minute, but my final substantive question is, supposing that business leaders listening to this podcast were interested in improving their own scaling practices, where would they begin? What would be the first steps of a program to go about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I would want them to create a scaling unit. And in this scaling unit are individuals who are responsible for making sure that your company's investments are following the five vital signs and your company is following my four little behavioral economic secrets to maintain high voltage, which is in the second part of the book. These scaling units are going to be important across every dimension of the organization. Now, some of your listeners might have heard of nudge units. So, so nudge units have become all the rage in organizations because they're able to show you little psychological insights that you can use across different parts of your firm. My vision of the scaling units are that any idea, whether it's an experiment or any part of the business, the scale unit can have a say in helping not only to determine is that idea scalable, but also 
what do we need to do to modify that idea or modify that approach to make it more likely to scale and more likely to lead to huge returns for our business? That's the scale unit, Martin. That's a, that's a great idea. So let me just wrap up because unfortunately, in spite of the richness of the topic, our time's limited with a couple of personal questions. So what are you reading about? What are you, what are you interested in nowadays, John? Yeah, so right now I am in the midst of moving from Lyft to a different company, which I cannot announce just yet. I'm going to be the chief economist of a Fortune 500 company starting in mid-March. I'm writing a textbook on experimental economics, and that textbook will probably come out the end of the year. That's heavy math and, and uh, won't be that interesting, I think, for your clientele. Is there a next business-oriented book in the pipeline? I think so. And it's going to involve generosity and corporate social responsibility. Well, thanks so much for spending time with us today, John, with a very interesting perspective. John List is the author of The Voltage Effect, published by Penguin Random House in February this year, 2022. And it covers the imperatives and the pitfalls of scaling. I, I think it's a really useful book for anyone in, in the business of innovation, which is, of course, most businesses nowadays. And I think there's a freshness and a rigor in drawing perspectives heavily from economics as opposed to the softer approach that many innovation books tend to take. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast platform to the Thinkers and Ideas podcast. Next time, we'll be talking to Luke de Brabender about his new book, Be Logical, Be Creative, Be Critical. But in the meantime, thanks so much for joining us, John. Thanks so much for having me, Martin, and I look forward to being back soon.